Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Dax Funderburk, the owner and operator of Beets Workin' Farm and HardneckGarlic.com, now located in the beautiful Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And they focus exclusively on growing 90 plus varieties of hardneck garlic available online and at numerous festivals throughout the Northeast. Beets Working Farm has was founded in 2010, growing year-round produce in South East PA after spending 20 plus years in the cable and satellite industry. After almost a decade of growing produce, the farm transitioned to garlic only in 2019, as well as relocating to Greensboro, Bend, Vermont. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, how did you get into farming? What was that transition from, you know, kind of being in the corporate world? Well, it wasn't as big of a transition as it may seem on the surface. So both of my grandparents uh, were on the farm full time. Mm -hmm. Uh, My my mother's parents had a truck patch in Pennsylvania, and my father's parents had a chicken and pig farm in South Carolina. And as a kid growing up, I wanted to be on the farm. It's interesting that both of my parents ran as fast as they could away from the farm. Um, So I'm the generation that wanted to go back. So even when I was working in in various roles that I had, my weekends were consumed by um, spending time out in the garden, typically in a a very large garden that we had as a family. But even prior to that, as a child, my fondest childhood memories were in the gardens with my grandparents or with our neighbors growing up um, and and learning life lessons and and just enjoying it all. Some of my favorite pictures, and in fact, the picture that I shared with you is as a young child um, staring at an ear of corn, right? And and the magic that that, that holds and the promise that it holds. And it's, it's that enthusiasm um, and excitement that frankly, uh-huh. I still have to go to farming. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So then um, when you transitioned, you ended up in, in, in Pennsylvania. Talk to us about kind of what your idea was as you built that farm. Sure. So, so I had spent about 20 years in the cable and satellite industry, and that time was really on the road. Uh, I would leave on a Sunday night or Monday morning and be back on a Friday. So I was away from the family, mm-hmm. and, and I really desired the opportunity to do something with my family. And, and so the opportunity to farm presented that. So in the mid to early 2000s, we, we purchased a piece of ground, about 25 acres, near to where both my wife and I grew up, and started to build out some infrastructure not really knowing ultimately what we would end up doing. We planted a hundred acre orchard. Uh, we had chickens and, and the garden and, and just kind of kept building and building and building well for, for irrigation and so on. Um, and then I had the opportunity in 2010 uh, to leave the role that I was in and come home full time. Little did I know at the time that would be short lived. Um, mm. I actually left on January 26th of 2010 and was re-engaged back with the same company on February 12th. So I was gone less than Wow. Um, but an opportunity had presented itself, one that was one that I, I had to pursue, uh, a situation where if I didn't pursue, I would probably wonder the rest of my life what it would have been like. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Turns out after getting into that role <laughs> for a few weeks, I, I wished I wouldn't have pursued it. Yeah. Um, and I, I had spent the next two years really trying to unwind out of that role, primarily because my mindset had already shifted. I had other plans and things that I wanted to do. And my heart was really back at home with the family and, and, and on the ground. Um, so then I left that role in June or July of 2012. And that's when we officially started Beats Working Farm. Uh, and, and we were focused on essentially what my grandparents would have referred to as a truck patch market. Mm-hmm. And, and we built that business over the course of a, a number of years with one guiding principle. And, and that primary principle was whatever we were going to do, we were going to do as a family. Mm-hmm. And we were not going to be dependent on outside labor. Mm-hmm. I've always had a very strong belief that the largest export off of most farms is the exports of dollars in, in trade for labor. And so we wanted mm-hmm. to build a farm that we could sustain as a family where we weren't relying on outside forces to make it work. Okay. Um, and at that time, what did your families look like? I mean, how many, how many kids, how many people were involved with the farm? Well, it was my wife and I, mm-hmm. and I have four daughters. So that would have been roughly 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So my oldest would have been 16 or 17. And my youngest would have been six. Okay. So, so a, a decent spread of ages. And, and all of them were active on the farm in various roles. Uh, from the beginning, mostly though helping at markets that we were doing and preparing to go to market on a Thursday and a Friday. We were fortunate as a family, we had made the decision to homeschool our children. Mm-hmm. So the kids were home with us. We had a flexible schedule that we could make work. Um, and, and frankly, the farming aspect for us was an important part of the overall homeschool experience and the lessons that we wanted to teach our children as they were growing up. Uh-huh. Okay. And so talk to us a little bit about what that farm looked like. You know, what was like the, how many acres, what was your, your propagation set up? So, so we were cultivating roughly on about two acres of ground. Okay. Uh, we had four high tunnels, one of which was a 30 by 96 heated. Yep. And then we had three movable tunnels, pipe skid movables that were 30 by 48 that were unheated. And then the remainder of the space was outside. We were farming and growing on a 30-inch bed system. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had really focused on we had really focused on winter production out of the gate. I viewed winter production as a place where we could create barriers to entry so okay. that the competition wasn't nearly as difficult. Um, there, there was less competition, obviously, in the wintertime. Price yeah. points were better. And individually, I enjoyed growing in the winter. One, one of my fondest memories of growing was harvesting fresh lettuce for the family on Christmas Day. Okay. This was prior to leaving the corporate world uh, when we were just dabbling with stuff. And I, I had been reading a lot from Elliot Coleman, mm-hmm. his Winter Harvest Handbook. And I had decided to plant some lettuces in the fall. And we overwintered them in what would now be called a caterpillar tunnel. Yep. Um, And actually not even a caterpillar tunnel, more of a low tunnel. And I remember Christmas morning going out in coveralls and literally sliding in underneath the low tunnel to be able to harvest fresh lettuce for Mm -hmm. salad on Christmas day. And and that was kind of the hook being set. Mm -hmm. And 
And from that point on, it, we really focused on how can we produce year round, take some of the burden off of the summer uh, and, and kind of shine at a time of the year when others were not, at least in our region and in our area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We find that we find that to still be true today. We're in South. We, we were growing produce in southeastern Pennsylvania in the Lehigh Valley. And even today in the Lehigh Valley, there's very few growers that are taking advantage of the winter seasons to produce. Um, so in, in this particular region, finding greens in the wintertime is still very difficult. Mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit about the, the tunnels you had. You had the movable tunnels. How many times a year were you typically moving those? Well, that would... That's actually an interesting conversation um, and, and point, and it's one of the lessons that we learned. What we learned was a movable tunnel, unless you were growing over top of a specific crop, if you had more than one, you really didn't need to move them. So if, okay. by, by way of example in your rotation, if you were going to do early season strawberries or mm-hmm. late season raspberries, you then had a, if you had multiple tunnels, you then had a reason to move off in one of those crops. Mm-hmm. With, with three movables, we were able to manage our rotation so that we, we didn't have to move the tunnels to achieve the desired effect of what we were looking to do. Um, okay. there, were some, there were some instances where we would want to pull off of spinach in mid-spring. Yeah. Um, or we'd want to pull off of carrots that we had germinated in, in fall. Um, but by and large, the movables very quickly became um, not moved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now were you just doing a skid system or a rail system or kind of what system did you have for that? Yeah. So it was a pipe skid system. So, mm-hmm. um, the, there's a number of different varieties, but one is on a V track with a roller system and they're very yep. easy to move. The pipe skids are not nearly as easy to move, they're certainly movable, but not as easy and friendly to move. Yeah. Uh, so the move process itself is, is a bit more cumbersome. And we had a little bit of a slope that we were on, which, okay. made, which made moving them in one direction very easy yeah. and the other direction a little bit more difficult. Um, but, but they were functional and they, they worked out great. We didn't have heat in any of the movables uh, and we were growing greens in those, those tunnels year round. Now, what we found was very specific varieties did exceptionally well through the winter harvest season. Uh, and we build off of a, a lot of the work that Elliot and Clara had done up at first uh-huh. four season farms and also Brett Grossgrau down at Evenstar in Maryland. Um, yep. And specifically the, a number of the varieties that Brett had cultivated and developed at Evenstar that had done very well for us in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I need to get him on the podcast because um, I'm actually not sure. Is he still farming full time or has he moved more into the seed production? I, I, you know, I honestly don't know. Um, I got to know Brett from spending some time with him very briefly up at Stone Barns uh-huh. uh, during a number of the events up there. And, and um, his seed was a little bit, the seed that he was developing for a little while had been, become a little difficult to find, but he markets it under the Evenstar brand. Um, okay. And favorites for us, he had, there was an Evenstar smooth kale and an Evenstar arugula. Uh-huh. Um, that were just rock stars for us. That that even star arugula, we were literally able to harvest almost weekly through the winter. The, the the growth rate in the unheated tunnels was phenomenal. And from what I understand, where he was at on the eastern shore of Maryland, he was gro- field growing that arugula through the winter without cover. 
Yeah. And that's the beauty is he basically, I mean, it was like basically a survival of the fittest. He'd throw out a couple pounds of arugula and whatever survived mm-hmm. is what he harvested for seed. And after, you know, six generations, you're just going to get some crazy, awesome, amazing growing arugula. Yeah. He, he had, he had the genetics and the stuff that, that he had available really outperformed everything else in the winter for us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So that's, and then you were selling at, how were you selling that product? So originally we started selling through a farm stand on the property. Now we're in a, a, can't really call Eastern Pennsylvania remote, but we're in a very rural location without a lot of, of traffic. So we did an incredible amount of social media, social, social media marketing and advertising. Yeah. The algorithms on Facebook at that time and Instagram were a little bit different and it was certainly a little easier to, to garner attention than it is now. Yeah. Uh, but, but that's really how we set about marketing. And, and we had a very simple philosophy. Our goal each week was to gain one customer who would spend $20 a week with us. Okay. And we wanted to know that customer on a first name basis and have a relationship with that customer. And while that doesn't seem like a lot, if, if you're able to do that every week over the course of a year, you've now suddenly added a significant amount of revenue to your business in what in a year, which is a relatively short period of time overall. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was the basis of which our approach was built on. Now, we obviously did much better than that, but that was the baseline of, of what we targeted. Unfortunately, our farm stand wasn't a staff farm stand. It was an honor system farm stand. Yep. And we had issues with theft. Yeah. And even and, us right now, with even with two cameras in there. So one of the things like yesterday, my team came in and said, Michael, your camera show, your bus shows that you sold three bags of salad mix, but there's seven missing. So we had to go watch the camera and we found out two customers didn't ring it through for some reason or another. So we now have to figure out what we're going to do about that. So, yeah. Yeah, it it was a, it was a big problem and roughly 30% of what we were putting at the stand was walking away. Wow. Um, And so we said, okay, if we're going to do this, this isn't going to work. I didn't feel real good about the camera route, just on a personal level. It just was something that didn't appeal to me. So we elected not to do that. Um, and, and so we started looking for farmers markets where we could sell our product at. Unfortunately, in the Lehigh Valley at that point in time, there were a fair amount of produce farms and being able to break into existing farmers markets was impossible. Yeah. It was just, there was, there was no way as a new produce farm that we were going to get into any reasonable existing market. There was a Thursday market. Um, that was close to, to us about five miles down the road. It was a Thursday market. If you went to that market and did a great job, maybe you would sell $200 oh, wow. worth of product. And um, the vote to allow us in to that first market was actually 50-50. And the tie-breaking vote was, was the guy who made chocolate candies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that, that allowed to get us into that market. And at that point in time, they literally had two produce growers. There were 30 vendors and only two had produce. Wow. Um, and, and you just, you couldn't get into these markets. So we made the decision to start our own market. And we live next to a community that's the second fastest growing community in Pennsylvania. Okay. And has the third highest median income. Um, and, and at that point in time, Whole Foods had started to talk about building a store in that zip code in that area. And so we knew that kind of supported the demographics that we thought were in the marketplace. 
So we built, um, we built a farmer's market from scratch and launched that market as a family initiative. That, that farmer's market's called Trexler Town Farmer's Market. Um, and it's at the, uh, the velodrome, which is the, um, the, the bicycle racing, supposed to be the bicycle, bicycle racing capital of the U.S., the, the Lehigh Valley velodrome, it's referred to as T-Town. So we launched in the courtyard of the velodrome on Saturday mornings. Okay. And we had a wonderful reception from local media and newspapers, and most importantly, from customers. And that, I believe we launched that market in 2014. And as a family, we managed the market for the first few years and then turned the market over to a nonprofit board that continues to manage the market to this day. I think in 2000, I think our third year, uh, we started a winter market. And since then, that market has gone year round. Uh, And then in the winter, it all alternates every other weekend. Yeah. Um, now with that too, were you the, how many vendors did you have at that market you started? I think when we started, we had 24 or 25. Oh, wow. So you started with a bang. Uh, yeah, I, I would say in the course of comparison to the other markets in the Lehigh Valley, it would have been, and is, and is still today, a smaller market. Okay. Um, but we had the full lineup. You yeah. That market and, and you would really find everything that you would expect to find at a farmer's market. There were a couple of very specific criteria for attendance that we put in place. One was in order to participate at the market, you had to be a producer within mm-hmm. 30 miles of the market. Okay. So, so if you were at, my definition of local is probably different than the definition that many people use. But if, if you wouldn't drive there to go to work or, or drive there to worship or drive there for your kids to participate in an extracurricular activity, it's not local. <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Outside of that definition, it becomes regional, in my opinion. So we had very hard and fast rules that to, to be a producer at that market, you had to be within 30 miles of the market. And it was a strict producer only market. Okay. Um, which for, for us as a family and as a producer in the valley, created some hardship for us. There were some hard feelings within, within the market community because there were some vendors that frankly just didn't fit that criteria and we were not going to allow them into the market. Um, that's how it goes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's You're not going to make everyone, you can't make everyone happy. Yes. At, at, yeah. at some point, the best decisions are often decisions where you say no. Yeah. And, and, and it's unfortunate and, at the end of the day, we all have to do what we think is right for the betterment of the situation. Yeah. Okay. So then let's talk about the transition to garlic because you kind of really made a, a drastic change there. And uh, what started that change? Old age. Okay. Physical, physical wear and tear. So it, it became apparent as the, the kids got older um, that none of my daughters were really interested in produce. They're, my oldest is off the farm and doing her own thing. My three youngest all have their own aspirations from a producer perspective. Okay. Um, my, my second oldest grows succulents and houseplants and various herbs and has an herbal tea business. Um, my second youngest is a baker. Okay. And my youngest aspires to grow mushrooms. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, 
but none of them were very interested in produce. So it became clear there wasn't really going to be someone to hand that business off to. Okay. And as I got older, and as we continued to grow, we could never satisfy demand. And the wear and tear that it was taking on me physically um, was now becoming a challenge. Yeah. And so we had thought about, and our original plan was that in the summertime, we would focus on garlic and then pretty much just grow through the winter and use okay. the that we had built to produce greens throughout the winter. Um, and then in 2016 or 2017, uh, we got hit hard by what they refer to as alley and leaf miner. Oh, okay. And it took a toll on our garlic crop and quickly realized that um, the labor dynamic of growing garlic on any significant scale was going to change greatly to deal with allium leaf miner. Mm. And at this point in time, my wife and I had started to think about um, not so much short-term retirement, but a longer-term plan towards where we were going to go. And mm. Vermont has always appealed to us. Um, and then confronted with the challenges of allium leaf miner in a garlic crop, we kind of took an out-of-box approach and said, well, maybe we should just think about heading to Vermont now. So in, in 2017, um, after having spent a little bit of time looking, we purchased a property in Northern Vermont um, that uh, better suited our longer-term goals of both garlic production as, as well as a different pace of life moving forward for us. Gotcha. All right. So then what's the current business model then look like? We're garlic only. We grow okay. up varieties of hard neck garlic. Uh, in the last two years, because of the pandemic, we elected to downshift a little and reduce total output. Uh, we had been growing about 100,000 bulbs per year. Okay. Uh, in the last two years, we've dropped back to about 50,000. Okay. One, because of concerns around being able to market during the pandemic, because a big portion of our sales are through um, festivals in the fall, Yeah, yeah. Which, which have obviously been impacted the last two years. And it also presented us with an opportunity to do a bit more of a deep dive on um, cultivating bulbous yeah. and, and reinvigorating seed stock through a bulbous mm -hmm. to round and clove to round project. Um, across our 90 varieties. Gotcha. Okay. So, and so then our intent is this coming fall, fall of, of this past year, 2021, we planted again about 50,000, the equivalent of 50,000 cloves, 50,000 bulbs. Mm -hmm. And in the plan for 2022 uh, will be to go back up to roughly about 100,000 bulbs per year. Um, gotcha. Our average customer size is about three pounds. Our average customer purchases about three pounds of garlic from us per year, uh, and and the, you know obviously the last, last two years, hundred percent of our sales have been online. Prior to that, I would say probably thirty-five to forty percent of our sales have been online, and the rest have been at festivals or farmers markets. Mm -hmm. So that that was a pretty big shift to kind of absorb in the course of the last two years. Um, and, and we've been able to successfully do that. It hasn't been without pain, um, but we've been able to successfully manage that shift. We look forward to hopefully being able to get back to festivals in 2022. 
Um, but at this point, who knows? Yeah. Now, along with this, the regular, now you're selling that for culinary or is it typically for seed stock? Well, we take a little bit of a different approach. Um, we don't designate our garlic as seed or culinary. Okay. We, grade on a, we grade on a quarter inch size. And what the customer does with it is the customer's business, not mine. So okay. um, obviously we think the folks that are buying the larger seed or the larger garlic are probably using it for seed. Mm -hmm. And people that are buying the smaller, cheaper bulbs are probably using it for culinary purposes. Yeah. Um, but, but we don't, if you go on our website, you'll notice that we sell based on size, not based on a definition. Primarily because if, if you're selling seed garlic to a customer, everybody defines what seed garlic is differently. Someone may define it as being larger than two inches. Mm -hmm. Someone may define it as being larger than two and a quarter inches. There's no standard definition. Um, and seed garlic shouldn't only be defined by size. There should also be some quality aspects that define what seed garlic is and is not. Um, yeah. So we've taken a little bit of a different approach there. Yeah, gotcha. Um, now, would you all, do you do any supporting I, uh, products with that too? Like, um, you know, problem with growing that much garlic is now you have all those garlic scapes and you have, you know, some bulbs that may not make the final cut. What, what are you, what is your goals with those? So the other challenge that we've tried to address over the course of the last two years with the pandemic is really focusing on value-added products. Mm -hmm. It's not something that we've done a, a lot of in the past, um, but we've certainly um, done a lot, a lot of homework and, and preparation on powders uh, and what we refer to as garlic nuggets, which are essentially chunks of dried garlic, as mm -hmm. well as black garlic. We also powder scapes. We'll mm -hmm. fly and powder scapes. We've thought about using the scapes for pickled scapes, but a lot of folks that we've talked with said that they just don't sell as well as they'd like them to. Yeah, yeah. There, there's really, unfortunately, there's really not a great market for scapes on any meaningful scale. Yeah. So it becomes one of those things where instead of going down the rabbit hole of trying to chase a solution, uh, at, at the moment, they end up on the compost pile. Yeah. You just chop them and get rid of them and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Now the, the movement up there to Northeast kingdom was mainly just to try to stay away from the alien miner. And is, is that ever going to get up there? You're still going to have to be covering up there or. Well, I, I, to be determined, right. Okay. I, I would be surprised if we didn't get spread to the, to the Northern parts of Vermont. I mean, it's all, it's already been confirmed in Massachusetts and New York. Yeah, where, where we're at in Pennsylvania, we're a half an hour from where the epicenter was at in Lancaster County. Gotcha. And it had been here for a few years before anybody really understood what had what was going on. Uh, we yeah, had seen, we had seen it in the crop previously, but not to a large extent, and we weren't sure what it was. Mm. And a neighboring grower who was also a, a market garden grower uh, was seeing it in his fall plant at the leaks extensively and, and we yeah. weren't doing leaks in the fall so we weren't seeing it then and um in our area it literally blew up over the course of two years and so moving moving to northern vermont was really for us um to escape two things right one was alley and leaf miner the other was the enormous amount of development mm. that was taking place within the area where we were located at yeah um, 
when we purchased the property in Pennsylvania in 2003 or 2004, we were surrounded by farmland. Yeah. If, if you stand on the front porch of that house now, it, within a half a mile, there's 3 million square foot of warehouse space. Oh, wow. So, yeah. you know, we're right along the 78 turnpike, northeast extension of the turnpike, Route 78, um, 222 corridor coming in and out of New York City and Pennsylvania. Yeah. And the amount of growth that has taken place and the amount of development that's taken place is, has been a little bit hard to fathom in a very short period of time. Um, mm -hmm. So we were not only, we primarily weren't escaping alley and leaf miner. We were trying to escape the development that was taking yeah. place in and around us. Uh, for a farm that's producing produce for customers, that development isn't necessarily a bad thing. It was the reason mm. why the neighboring community was one of the fastest growing communities in the state with the highest average median income. Um, yeah. But from, from a quality of life perspective, um, I, I really prefer not to listen to tractor trailers backing up all day. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, obviously that gave you a, a great, you know, the, 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 the number of customers there, but now your customer model is you obviously sell at festivals, but now you have the website hardneckgarlic.com. Yeah, that's correct. And we've, we've had the website for, for quite some time, certainly pre pre pandemic. Uh, but the website became much more important with the pandemic starting in 2020 because obviously all of the festivals were canceled in 2020. Um, very fortunate that we had the website established and up and running prior to that. Um, 2021, we weren't sure what was going to happen. And about half of the festivals were canceled. And the other half that proceeded, we weren't sure if they would get canceled at the last minute. Yeah. And, and I just couldn't take that risk. So we yeah. made the decision in 2021 just to forego the festivals yeah, and market everything through the website. The first year of the pandemic in 2020, the website was literally open for four days for sales and we were already sold out. Wow. And last year in 2021, it wasn't nearly as good. Um, it took nine days to sell out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you were sweating there at day five. <laughs> yeah. Day five was kind of touch and go. Now, in all seriousness, we were very fortunate. Now, we've seen a shift in customer habit related okay. to online buying. And if, and if you now go out and you do a search online, you're going to find that there are a lot of folks selling garlic mm -hmm. and even bulbous for that matter. Yeah. On eBay and Etsy. Etsy, however. Yes, you yes, yes. And um, that's been a surprise to me. I, I wouldn't have thought one that customers would look there for garlic, uh, and and that there'd be a marketplace in those locations to sell garlic online. But there appears to be. I think there's some questions about the general quality of some of that stuff. Not all, obviously, but, yeah, yeah. But, but some of that stuff, and and so that's created some anomalies in the marketplace uh, online specifically. We sell online because there's customers from all over the country that are looking for very specific varieties that we grow. Yeah, but our, our preferred model is very much the is very much the festivals and the farmers markets. Yeah. Now, so some of these more unique varieties, are you just searching out people that? And how have you acquired seventy five plus varieties? Well, it's um, I like to tell folks as a kid, I, I enjoyed collecting baseball cards. 
Okay. Yeah. So, so garlic is my adult version of baseball cards. Okay. Um, but, but in all seriousness, we're, we're now a closed farm. And what I mean by that is, is we don't bring new seed onto the farm anymore. Um, uh-huh. Okay. And, and so the varieties that we've collected have been from over the last, however long it's been um, from various places. I think the first varieties of garlic that we purchased that were outside of our family were from Seed Savers Exchange in Decorah, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then we would find unique stuff at various festivals that we attended, or we would trade with folks that we became friendly with um, through the various garlic connections. Um, there was a garlic farm near us here in Pennsylvania that went out of business around the same time as we had the problem with Alley and Leaf Miner here the first time. Mm-hmm. And we bought quite a few varieties from them. Um, and it's, it's just accumulated over time. So now we're, I, I think we're right at 90 or 91 varieties of hardneck. Wow. We also grow a little bit of elephant garlic, which is a leek. Yep. And then we grow two soft neck varieties that, that were given to us by a friend. And, and that's it. My guess is, is over the coming years, this will be the f- fourth harvest in Vermont this year. Okay. Yep. My guess is, is that some of those 90 varieties will, will be taken out of our yep. production plan just simply because they haven't performed as well in Vermont as we need them to. Yeah. Uh, a variety that comes to mind is a Creole variety called Rose de la Trec, uh, which is what they refer to as the French pink garlic. Okay. Creoles, Creoles typically do not size up well in Northern climates. They don't appreciate yes. the cold long yeah. winter. And that particular Creole especially doesn't like it. Mm. Um, and so now going into our fourth year, unless we see something dramatically different, that will probably come out of our collection. Um, yeah. Interestingly, there's another Creole called Pescadero Red um, that doesn't perform as well as other varieties, but for a Creole has a tendency to make a two inch bulb in a Northern climate, which is actually quite good. Um, yeah. So, so that will stay in the rotation. So we'll go through and make some adjustments um, to make sure that we're appropriately balanced. And yeah. And I would guess we'll probably end up probably down somewhere around 75 varieties till it's all set and done. Yeah. Now, do you have a variety that is like performing really, really well for you up there that far north? Well, we have a couple that have actually performed really well um, in that northern climate. Marble purple stripe, marble purple stripes okay. seem, seem to thrive. So a variety like Russian giant, yep, Bogatir, um, Zank, yep. um, Tichi. Matichi is one of my favorite varieties. It's a beautiful bulb. Mm-hmm. Um, they've done well. Surprisingly, we've had a lot of luck with turbans mm-hmm. also. Turbans typically prefer and favor a warmer climate, but they've performed well for us. Um, specifically, Blossom and yep. Lotus have done very well for us. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a garlic snob. It sounds so, like it. <laughs> I, I am. It's okay. Um, and, and I really don't care for porcelain varieties. Okay. Interesting. All right. I, I find the, I find the flavor of porcelains to just be so-so okay, um, and, and less than remarkable. So we, and that shows up in what I elect to grow. So yeah. we, don't, we don't, we have a lot of porcelain varieties, but we don't grow them in a the large quantity. The other uh, side is, is that 
there's a lot of folks that are already growing music and yes. German wine mm-hmm. and Zemo. And so the, yeah. there's no reason for us to really have a bunch of those varieties. So we, we try to find the nooks and crannies that are a little bit different, um, mm-hmm. which has helped us from a marketing perspective. Um, but, but uh, you know, Dugansky is a purple stripe that's done very well for us up there. Uh, Deerfield purple, again, a purple stripe that, that's done well for us up there. Um, and, and people are surprised to learn that in that northern climate, which is, is 3B, our low last year was below negative 20, and it looks like we've had colder temperatures than that this winter. Uh, okay. we, don't, we don't mulch. Really? So um, we've gone away from using, now we plant in plastic mulch, but yep. we don't use a mulch protectant above that. Um, we stopped using straw quite a few years ago. Yeah. And what we found was is the straw was actually causing more problems than it was solving. Um, one, from a moisture perspective, because we had had a number of summers in a row that were quite wet. Yeah. And also grain straw has a tendency to harbor mites. Yeah. And, and mites in a cured garlic crop is probably the worst thing that you can have. Um, uh-huh. And, and so uh, we spent a little bit of time doing some tests and ultimately elected to go away from, from using a mulch covering and, and have now come to the conclusion that unless it's in a very unique situation, um, straw mulch is pretty much an old wives' tale. And, okay. and that, that your garlic crop will survive fine without being mulched. And, and what finally gave me the, the confidence to go forward without mulching was, frankly, was Brian Bates at Bear Creek Organic Farm in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And Brian, um, around the same time that we were screwing around with not mulching, I noticed that he wasn't mulching in his climate in Michigan. Yeah. And that gave me the confidence to, um, to give it a shot and probably one of the best decisions we made as it related to growing garlic. And certainly from a cost perspective, not having to buy straw in to mulch yeah. a hundred thousand bulbs of garlic uh, uh, has a considerable amount of not only financial benefit, but also labor benefit as well. Yeah. We're using um, chopped leaves for ours. And um, I'm now wondering if I should go out there and uncover, because basically we just blew the, well, manure spreaded the leaves on there and made a nice thick mulch. But now listening to you, I'm almost wondering if I should just pull that right off and leave it the top of the mulch, the plastic mulch open right to the air. Yeah, well, I don't think I'd worry about it right now, but I yeah. think I would evaluate where you were in the spring and, yeah. how, and how wet things are in the spring. Yeah. Yeah, we do have super dry soil. So, um, and again, we have irrigation too very easily. So it's it's interesting. So then how are you cultivating during the summer between the rows? Uh, we're using a, um, uh, essentially a, a stirrup hoe on a, um, on a push hoe, on a wheel hoe. Really? Wow. Yep. Yeah, we, we also have we we also have duck feed on on the cultivator right yep. on the back of the tractor. But once the plants get so tall, we can't really get through with that. Yeah, um, and, and so it's really not um, not as cumbersome as one would think. Uh, we had an Alice G cultivating tractor. I actually sold that last year. Yeah, because frankly, I I just didn't feel like I was getting enough use out of it, and the the marketplace at the time was demanding pretty high prices for food conditions. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and so I wanted to capitalize on that. We have, a, we have a hard and fast rule here that if we have equipment on the farm and we're, we hadn't used that piece of equipment in the last year, it has to go. That's right? very smart. If we haven't used it and we have no intention of using it in the foreseeable future, it has to go. Um, and, and actually you benefited from some of that. I think, uh, yeah. we traded with you, uh, uh, the greens harvester, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and so finding opportunities to do that, I think is really important to keep not only the farm clean and free of waste, but also financially healthy. Otherwise you end up with a lot of equipment sitting in your field rows that, um, are just yeah. losing value. Exactly. Yeah. You got to fit. And I'm just thinking of like two things right now that I need to focus on getting rid of. And not, and it also is taking up space and it's a tripping hazard because these pieces of equipment stick up two feet and you get weeds in them. You can't see them and you're tripping over them. Yeah. So um, yeah, everyone should <laughs> get rid of that stuff. But I think that's too. So this is something I told again, and I, I told a, a person I was working with one time we were consulting with somebody and I was, they were like, well, I've got, you know, these hundred different tools in my tool shed and I don't know what to get rid of. And I said, well, here's something you can do. I said, take like a, you know, one inch, um, like a, a masking tape. And every time you use a piece of equipment, put a ring of masking tape around the handle. And after about a month, you'll realize the top 10 things you use and pull them out of there and then start doing the same thing over again. And at the end of the year, whatever doesn't have any masking tape needs to be gotten rid of. Yep. I mean, it could be done any sort of ways. I mean, it could be done with a Sharpie. You know, there's so many ways to think about it, but it was just that aspect of what you use needs to, because we all have that kind of stuff of things that we say, oh yeah, I'll be using that or I need to use it for that, but it never gets used and it's just a waste of space. It's, it's, really, easy to, it's really easy to collect things. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, so what's the, what's the year look like for you with this, this business model? Obviously there's massive heavy times for you to be planting, but kind of walk us through what a, a year on a garlic farm now looks like. So, so our year, our year starts with, with planting mm -hmm. and in Northern Vermont, we're still again, fourth year from the main crop to be there. We're still dialing everything in, but we essentially start planting in our location in Northern Vermont the end of the first to the beginning of the second week of October. And it will take us anywhere, depending on weather, anywhere from three weeks to four weeks to get the crop fully planted. Mm -hmm. Also recognizing that uh, varieties like our turban varieties, we don't want to plant until we absolutely have to because of their growth rate. Um, turbans have a tendency to sprout and grow very quickly. So you don't want to put them in the ground any earlier than you need to, to ensure that you're just getting root development in the fall. So we'll wrap up planting um, around the end of the first week of November, typically. Okay. So it's pretty much October. Yeah. Per, yeah. Pretty much, pretty much the month of October. And then we'll spend the time between um, the end of planting and say Thanksgiving, doing whatever maintenance and upkeep that we need to do. Mm -hmm. as well as any processing of stuff left over from planting. So mm -hmm. when we plant, uh, we literally weigh every clove that goes in the ground. So, so every clove that gets busted off of a bulb gets weighed and it gets sorted into category by weight. And there's a portion of those cloves that will not ever see the ground because they are not of the right size. Okay. 
And sizing depends on subgroup of variety. So as an example, um, these aren't the exact numbers, but it'll be close. You know, turban varieties, we're looking for cloves that are greater than seven grams in size, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But on a Rockham bowl, you're looking for a clove size, let's say it's four grams or larger. Mm -hmm. Anything okay. that falls below those, and that's not exactly right, but it's directionally correct. Um, anything that would fall below those sizes gets set aside and doesn't get planted. And as soon as the bulb is popped, those leftover cloves go into refrigeration just to hold them in a steady state for a couple of weeks until we can get to them. And then mm -hmm. they get processed into powders or nuggets. So, okay. so that work then gets done prior to Thanksgiving. And, and then we, then we hibernate, if you will. Yeah. Um, paperwork, taxes, research, um, plans for the coming year, whatever the case may be. At the moment, I'm still trying to get the family relocated to Vermont. So mm -hmm. there's, you know, a whole bunch of nonsense involved with that. Um, in Northern Vermont, we'll have snow cover until sometime in April. Oh, wow. Um, two years ago, it was the first week of May. It, it's um, not uncommon to have additional snowfalls into May, but mm -hmm. as soon as we can get out, We'll go out and go through the crop in early, in April or May to make sure that everything's made it through the plastic mulch, to make sure we don't have anything caught underneath, mm -hmm. uh, and to do some very quick spot weeding in holes. And, and that's kind of the agenda for the first few weeks. We're on sandy loam that's on top of gravel, so we don't hold moisture well. So we'll start irrigating shortly thereafter. Uh, first two irrigations will include fish and kelp, as well as mycorrhizae. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're just at that point, early May, we're just into the regular season of maintaining, maintaining the, the crop, making sure that we don't have weed pressure, working the subsequent fields that we'll be planting this fall. Early May, we'll be putting in cover crop um, for the ground that we'll be planting on that fall. Uh, the year before we plant uh, would be in mustard. Two years prior would have been buckwheat. Um, so we're, we're dealing with that stuff. Uh, in the environment we're in, July 4th is kind of the time frame for when we're scaping. Okay. In southeastern Pennsylvania, we would have scaped um, right after Memorial Day, the beginning of June. Yep. Northern Vermont, we're scaping right around July 4th. So what does scaping look like for you? I mean, is it just you going out and breaking them off or do you pull them or? Yeah. So in, great question. And, and we have a video about this on our, on our YouTube channel, uh, the garlic grower, where we have a couple of videos up with tips for growing garlic, but for, for scaping, it's really important not to pull the scape. It's important to either cut or snap. Now we don't cut, we snap with our, with our fingers. Okay but it's really important not to pull the scape out of the stem. Essentially, when you pull a scape out of the stem, you've created an entry point for moisture and for uh -huh. pathogen. Yes. And, and that moisture and pathogens will eventually work its way down to the bulb, right? Because your scape is the main stem in your bulb on, on hard necks. So mm -hmm. we want you to snap about an inch above the top leaf, being careful not to remove any leaves. Every okay. leaf that you remove from the plant, you'll see about a 13% reduction in bulb size based on the research that's been done. So, wow. so you need to be careful when you're going through. It's not something you can go through like a wild man. 
Yeah. Yeah. You don't want just the random person doing it. I mean, it sounds like you do a lot of this work yourself. Well, if, if I don't do it, it's one of my daughters or my wife. Uh huh. Again, because our principle is, is no outside labor. Yes. So, so every, every bulb, every step of the process is, is touched by a family member. And, and your conclusion is right. I would guess that, um, especially now that we're only doing 50,000 bulbs a year, last year, I escaped everything myself. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which was certainly very doable for me. If all of those bulbs were one variety and they all came in at one time, I'd never be able to do it alone. Yeah. But the scape harvest is really spread out over about three weeks with, with turbines beginning first and rock and bowls coming in last. And it's the uh-huh. same with harvest. Harvest is spread out over an extended period of time because the, the harvest window is different for the different subgroups. So that makes it a lot more manageable um, and is one of a couple of reasons why we like to grow the different varieties. Uh, we don't get a workload at one particular moment. That's, you know, it, it's a, it's a real workload, but not necessarily overwhelming at any given one point. Yeah. So we'll, we'll scape again, that window last week of June to second week of July, depending on variety. And then once we scape within a, a couple of days of scaping, it'll get its last irrigation. Okay. Water off. Okay. So you should, wait a minute. You shut your water off. Let's say sometime in July. Yes. Yeah. So, so let, as an example, if I scape, if I scape turbines the last week of June up till the first of July, they'll get a final irrigation within a couple of days of that. Okay. And then they'll get no more water until they'll, they'll never see any more water. We don't irrigate again at all. If they get natural rainfall, well, I can't control that. Yeah. Right. But yeah. that's also fairly well managed because of the fact that I'm in plastic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. The only access that plant is really getting the moisture is anything that may be going through the planting hole. Yeah. And at that point, the stem size is sized up that it's occupying the majority of that hole anyways. Yeah. Right? So how many, um, how many rows, what's your spacing on, do you do different spacing than in different varieties? The, the only, the only thing that we space differently is elephant garlic. Okay. Everything okay. else is, is, um, on a slightly more than a six by six spacing. Okay. Yep. On a, on a, on a bed top, we do four rows, diagonal spacing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so two and two, but they're offset from each yep. other. And do you do that with a, give like a rolling grid you use or like a, or do you just, how do you manage that? Yeah, so we actually use the bed roller from Johnny's mm-hmm. simply because we already had it. Yeah. But if I was buying new again, I would buy the, I think it's two bad cats is the name of the company. Yep. yep. That seems to be the standard now that people really like. Yeah. That, that's a pretty, that's a pretty slick setup. The, the bed roller from Johnny's is adequate. I, I don't love it. Um, primarily because the wire has a tendency to want to catch on plastic at spots and create extra holes. Mm-hmm. And, and the diddlers, unless you weld them in, uh, have a tendency to want to dislodge after a lot of use. Right. Mm-hmm. So the whole point of the, the bed roller from Johnny's is the movable diddlers. So you don't, you don't want to weld them in. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, the two bad cats looks like a much better solution. We have a water wheel transplanter from Buckeye uh, yeah. that we've used in the past. And we just simply come to the conclusion that we need 
three people to run the transplanter. Yeah. Well, three people individually can plant just as fast as we can on the transplanter. Mm. And it's, and the transplanter is uncomfortable to work on. Yeah. Um, well, let me rephrase that. It's, it's uncomfortable for me to work on. Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I mean, I, we had, we had that time where we had crew that, you know, they, there was their favorite thing. They, you know, get them on that transplanter. They'd be, they'd be there happy all day. <laughs> yeah. So. I, I, I'm both way too old and way too uncoordinated to be comfortable in the back of that transplanter. Yeah. And, and the speed of the tractor driving the tractor with somebody else on the transplanter um, is not my favorite thing to do. Yeah, it's we have, well, you have to have a special tractor for that, typically creeper. Now, what we would do is we actually, for garlic, we would actually just run the tractor down at a higher speed and then just everyone would walk behind and plant it because that's what we use for so many other things. But um, for your specialized aspect, I mean, again, it's a three to $4,000 tool that you're only using one time a year. Yeah, well, and, that, and that's exactly it because I'm not going to use it for anything else. And, and we were actually, we have a, a cruise speed we have a John Deere 3720, I think is mm-hmm. the, the yep. number on it. And it has a cruise speed um, that we can actually set it at that's slow enough to work yeah. on the transplanter. Um, nice. but, but, but my problem is, 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 you know, I go stir crazy sitting on the tractor moving at that speed, right? Yeah. Um, so, so it's just not something that, it, it's just not something that worked for us. Listen, there's yeah. a lot of great tools out there. There's a, a lot of great solutions. And the answer as to whether they're productive and useful for people are going to be different in every instance. Um, Well, I mean, let's, let's take a little example of your neighbor there. You know, you've got Pete who's doing massive scale garlic. And again, when you, there's different discussions and different thoughts about the quality of the product he produces um, just because of how it's raised. Um, But I mean, and again, a lot of people have good success with it. So I'm not going to knock that, but and you both are profitable and both are in business and both doing quite well. Yeah. Yeah. Pete, Pete grows an enormous amount of garlic, um, yeah. seven acres from what I understand, all, all music. Um, yeah. and he has a marketplace for it and he's able to sell it and it works out great for him. His, yeah. his method of, of cultivating, planting, cultivating, harvesting, curing is, is wildly different than mine. Yeah. That's not to say it's wrong. It's just to say it's different. Yeah. Um, so different marketplaces as well, different customer bases, different marketplaces. So you, yeah. so you have to find what works for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think his marketplace ended up being mostly large um, seed companies um, because basically, you know, a lot of us were looking to get that garlic and um there was an email that came out midsummer and says, yep, we don't have anything for you this year. And yeah. well, he also has, yeah. his retail, he also has his retail stores, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he sells a tremendous amount of produce into the marketplace in, in Boston specifically, right? You got yeah. the guys, the guys growing 300 acres of produce. Oh right? yeah. It's a massive, massive operation. And, so. and, and, and a lot of value add and started with a little garden in the back of his parents' place many years ago. Right. And, yeah. and so, um, couldn't be, couldn't be happier for him. He, he, he knows what he's doing is, is a great grower and, and he's found a niche that works for him. Ours is a very different niche. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's kind of, cause it's really interesting to hear you walk through this whole season. And I think we've gotten through the whole season now, right? Well, then we, we escapes in, in early July. Yeah. We start harvesting the last week of June. Okay. And we'll harvest through the first and second week of August. Yeah. Depending on the weather, 
Um, curing time can be three weeks, can be six weeks, it depends. Um, but our goal is to have a portion of our, our, our crop cured and cleaned and graded to be able to hit the first big festival, which is Labor Day weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also don't we also don't open our online store until Labor Day weekend. So while we have an online presence year round, our storefront it only opens it'll open Saturday at noon, Labor Day weekend. Mm-hmm. And then that'll remain open for however long we have garlic available. Um, yeah. And, and works for us. We I I as a general rule of thumb have never been comfortable selling a product that I can't physically put my hands on. Mm-hmm. So I, okay. I don't want to open up orders for varieties of garlic until I have them cleaned and graded. So I know exactly what I have. Mm-hmm. And, and so our goal is to get everything cleaned and cured, cured and cleaned and ready by Labor Day, by Labor Day weekend, so that we can load it online and so that we have it available at the festivals. And then pretty much from the pretty much from Labor Day weekend until we start planning in October, every weekend we're at a garlic festival somewhere. Gotcha. Yeah. And do you make that a family affair? Do you guys all go and make it a, a trip or is it more like it's uh, you know, surgical we're in and we're out? No. Well, we don't, we don't, we don't make a, a, a trip per se vacation out of it. The whole yeah. family goes there. There is no way that we could facilitate a festival unless we were all there. Okay. Uh, we, we, um, the, the festivals are depending on the festival. Some of the festivals are smaller, but we, we really focus on um, the larger festivals. There's two large festivals, Labor Day weekend. We only do one. And then you have Hudson Valley, which is um, normally the end of September. It's been the beginning of October recently. You have Easton, you have Connecticut, and they're very, very large festivals. And, and at a minimum, we would need at least four people there. Mm-hmm. To, be able to, to be able to facilitate the number of varieties we take. And we, we typically don't take all 90 varieties to the festivals. We usually take 40 or 50 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. simply because we, we would not have enough room underneath the tents and enough yeah. space to be able to transport that yeah. much stuff. Now, let's say someone comes up and asks for a variety, you know, you have someplace else. Do you just push them to the online store or is that typically already sold out? So you can't. Well, we would, we would send them to the online store. Or, so we'll, when we're doing both festivals and the online store in the same year, which hasn't been the case the last two years, but yeah. certainly was before, we would allocate inventory to online sales or festivals. Gotcha. And, then, and then when we would come back from the festivals, we would adjust the online store mm-hmm. each week to represent what sold out or what we, what we hadn't sold out of yet. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then you, then basically after the festival season, you're into planting and then it's the whole cycle over again. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and there is the last festival of the year is Connecticut, which is the second weekend in October. Yeah. So the overlap for us is when we're not at the festival, festival ends up being Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Friday for setup for yeah. Friday for getting there and set up Saturday and Sunday, the festival. And then Sunday night we drive back to Vermont. Yeah. And we're doing that because we're prepping, we're prepping for fall planting, right? Yeah. Um, fertilizing, putting amendments in, laying plastic, cover crop from what we just harvested, et cetera, while the festivals are ongoing. And then there's a chance that there may be a slight overlap between planting and the last festival in Connecticut. 
um, but not usually. What really drives that is, is we have to keep a, an eye on the longer range forecast to make mm -hmm. sure that we're not going to have a snow event that'll knock us out of the field before mm -hmm. we're done planting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that's really the driver. Yeah. Where are you on your thriving farmer journey? If you go to growingfarmers.com, you can click on our assessment, take our assessments, just a few questions, and what it will do is show you exactly where you are on the five-stage thriving farmer journey. And what this will do then is give you some next steps, some resources to help you know what to focus on next in your business to move you to the next level with your farm. All right. So let's move a little bit into like, I, I know you spent 20 years in um, the business world. Talk us through a little bit of kind of like, you know, what you learned along the way there. Cause I know you did a lot of efficiency things and just kind of like how uh, manufacturing operated. And I think a lot of that can be pulled right into the farming world. Well, it certainly should be. Um, and, I, and I'm a big fan of, of Ben Hartman and the work mm -hmm. that he's done um, with lean methodologies in the farming world. Um, my industry background was in cable and satellite and in, in all different areas, whether it was installation or cable construction or set-top box converter repair, I had the opportunity to, to work in a lot of different disciplines within that industry. Mm -hmm. um, and, and pretty much all of those opportunities were in what I would refer to as turnaround situations companies that were underperforming for a variety of reasons mm -hmm. um, and, and needed to be cleaned up and, and reviewed and, and uh, in many cases invested in appropriately to, to bring the return that was, that was warranted. Um, with a lot of focus on Six Sigma and lean principles mm -hmm. and without going into a lot of jargon around it, it really comes down to removing waste from the business. And, mm. and teaching people how to see waste yeah, and, and, and to recognize that waste in their operation and then remove it from the business. And, and one of the things that, that we found in these businesses as we would go through them was that the issue was usually at the management level. The issue yeah. was not usually at the employee level. Um, there's very few employees who want to come to work and do a bad job. Most yeah. employees want to come to work and do a good job but they may not be empowered to do so, right? Uh, or may not be properly incentivized to do so. Yeah. So a, a lot of the work that we did was on educating employees, but also empowering the employees to make the changes in the business that make them run optimally. Um, and also recognizing that, I think this is really important, is you don't know what you don't know, mm -hmm. right? And so people will come in and they'll want to make changes for the sake of making change without really knowing and understanding what first is going on. So I had mentioned earlier that we have this rule on the farm that if we don't use a tool in a year, it has to leave. That's really about recognizing waste, not only yeah. in financial assets, but also um, in just the time that, to your point, tripping over the tool in the field because you didn't realize it was there because it was buried under weeds. Yeah. And meanwhile, depreciating in value. So um, really some interesting situations where the businesses were fantastic businesses and the employees were a good group of folks, but they weren't allowed to prosper and flourish uh, because they weren't empowered to make the changes that were needed within the business, right? Yeah. And, and, it, and it really just comes down to 
recognizing waste, understanding the difference between operator time and machine time, mm-hmm. right? And, and when you can replace operator time, and in the context of this conversation, operator time equals labor cost, right? Yeah. When you can replace labor cost with, with a one-time machine time purchase, right? So yeah. um, if you're on a farm where the greens harvester works for you, right? Yes. The greens harvester is a great example of replacing labor, you know, operator time for machine time. Yeah. Right? And it's like a six to six to one or even a 12 to one. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And, and so for us, you know, we had a big focus when we were producing produce, we had a big focus on, on salad greens. Yeah. Well, the, the wash and pack and dry process for salad greens is cumbersome to say the least. Yeah. We, we were not using the, the washing machine hack. We were using um, Hobart mm-hmm. salad spinners. And a new Hobart salad spinner, stainless steel salad spinner, if you were purchasing it new, was over two grand. Yeah. Uh, we were able to find them in very good condition used through Craigslist. Um, at least one of them we were able to. The other one we had to purchase new because we couldn't find a second but we purchased the second one because we quickly realized for the amount of greens that we were processing in a week, hundreds and hundreds of pounds, that the machine time of having a second spinner, mm-hmm. right, was far better from a one-time expenditure standpoint than having someone there standing waiting for the spinner to be finished. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, and so it, it, it's really about identifying and highlighting the bottlenecks in your process and, and, essentially smoothing them out and removing waste at, at every step of the, the path. One, one of the other big investments that we made when we were doing produce was I needed to purchase a walking cooler, but I also needed to have a way to transport product to market. Yeah. So we, we ended up buying a, uh, what's referred to as um, a um, cooler trailer out yep. of Florida, which is a 20-foot trailer with a reefer unit in it. And that unit served as our farm walk-in and our transportation to market. Okay. But, but the added benefit was as soon as we were done packing, the product went right into the trailer. Okay. And it didn't come out of the trailer again and get handled a second or third time until we were selling it at market. Yeah. So instead of loading the walk-in, loading the truck to go to market, unloading the truck at the market to reload, Right. At the end of the day, loading everything back up and bringing it back, probably to throw it on the compost pile because it's no longer in saleable condition. Yeah. We load the trailer once, go to market, and whatever didn't sell was still fresh because it had never left the walk in the original time. Right. Yeah. So I had, so there was literally, if we went to a Saturday market and we had a rainstorm all day on Saturday and there was no turnout at the market everything that I took was still saleable. So I could move it into a wholesale account on Monday if I needed to. Yeah. So I had no product shrinkage whatsoever through the, through that market and through the weekend, as well as the reduction in the additional handling of product. And, you know, it's invisible waste. How many times do you go in and out of the walk-in to load and reload? Yep. How many additional steps? How do you alleviate that? You get back the trailer right up to the pack area. Mm-hmm. And we had the trailer right at our stall at, at market and, and away we went. So um, the, the biggest thing is really taking the time 
to really look and search out for that waste in your operation at all different places. To, to your point about tools earlier, yeah, knowing what well, tools you use frequently. Yeah, and I, I think too that it, it's like one of the things that we have is we have a walk-in cooler that's not in our barn, it's right behind our barn. And so one of the things we're gonna be spending money on is concrete so that they can go directly from the wash pack area and roll the whole uh, cart right into the cooler. So again, they're not picking it up, not moving one bit at a time. So they're moving six or eight now. Um, so that's one of the things we're doing. Um, and, uh, you know, just and the other thing we're doing is like putting concrete in our tr- propagation house because we're finding that, um, again, moving stuff via cart all through the propagation, as well as a non a non-hospitable environment for mice because mice love, you know, hiding, you know, down in the whatever, you know, the ground cloth, that kind of stuff. So now if it's a smooth surface, they cannot penetrate. They have a lot less ability to hang out in there. Yeah. And, and I think the benefit of those types of changes and those types of investments is, is there's a continuing benefit year over year that you're building upon, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you're saving now a thousand dollars every single year. And that kind of, if you keep doing those improvements, those, those, those pile up really fast. I mean, it's the same thing you said earlier about a new $20 customer every single week is that at the end of a year, 52 little improvements means hours off your week. Yeah. Compounding impacts are, are really important. And one of the, there's a couple of really important things. One of which is, is your approach to continuous improvement. Right. And and whether or not you have a, a very disciplined approach to continuous improvement and rooting out that waste in your business. But equally important is understanding that quality is not an end of line process. You're not going to inspect quality out of your product. Right. You have to build quality into steps within your process to ensure that you have the quality at the end of the line that you're looking for. And, and there's a lot of folks that, that don't understand that and, and don't spend the adequate yeah. amount of time on that. And so as an example, with your, with your rodent, with the, with the mice and, and voles, right? Creating yeah. an environment that's not hospitable to that ultimately ends up in a better quality product at the end of the day, right? Yeah. So in addition to the labor savings that you achieve by utilizing a rolling cart or a trolley system in the prop house, You've also improved your overall quality, right? And, and also your throughput because you'll have less damage and less loss as a yes. result of, of that damage. And so, you know, where can you get the biggest bang for the buck? And how do you pull the trigger on the investment? One of the things that, that I think folks, especially in farming, are afraid of are expenditures that they're not 100% sure are always going to work for them, Right. One of the biggest mm-hmm. things that I hear about winter growing is, is that they have a hard time justifying the cost of the heater and the cost yeah. of the propane to be able to heat with. And, and the reality is, is if you have a marketplace for winter greens, the cost of the infrastructure and the cost of the propane is minimal compared to the revenue opportunity. Yeah. Well, we, yeah. If it costs a hundred dollars a week to heat and that's, and that's us on a high week because we're heating a, 36 by 200 foot structure. Um, part of it gets, gets heated to 42 degrees. The rest of it gets heated to about 25, 26 degrees. That's what it, we can go down to that without significant damage. And on the nights at zero degrees, it costs $25 to heat it. But in the winter, we're only going to heat for maybe 40 nights. And when you run those numbers, um, that's 20 times 50. Is that, what is that? A thousand dollars in heat? 
Well, it's, it's funny that that's the number that you came up to because as a general rule of thumb in Pennsylvania, we would turn on propane on the middle of October, about the 15th of October. Okay. And our, and our temperature setting was 34. Right? Okay. Yeah. And, and, and we would maintain that temperature until the third week of February. From the second week of October to the third week of February, we would burn roughly $1,000 in propane. <clears throat> now, granted, propane cost at that time was a little bit cheaper than it is now. Well, right? and we're doing natural gas, so we're far cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but back to this, that interesting. So you were doing 34 degrees and that's originally what we were at, but we found that the microgreens liked it warmer because they just needed to speed them up. So we tried to heat that more and I don't want to heat the whole thing to 42 degrees. And yeah. I found that with some strategically placed, um, basically sheeting, we could just let the rest of the house drop a bit. And it didn't really seem to affect the quality of the greens. So yeah, now we, we, we were of the, we were of the opinion opinion that the regrowth rate specifically on Salanova okay. was significantly better if the house never went to a freezing level. So oh, now that's interesting. So if you maintain yep. the temperature of freezing, there was less stress on the plant. You had a higher regrowth rate because it wasn't constantly freezing. Yep. Yep. And, and you had less chance of a bottom rot issue on the Salanova. Right. Okay. Interesting. Uh, interesting. By maintaining, by maintaining yeah. 34. So the couple of dollars, instead of going on from 26, heating at 26 versus 34, yeah. the other, the other huge benefit was I didn't have to screw around with row cover. <laughs> yeah. Well, even at the third, even at the 26, I'm not doing any row cover. I'm just leaving it completely open. Wow. But, well, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm the only thing we're seeing a bit of damage on is actually, this is interesting. White Russian kale. Everything else is completely fine. We have, you know, the heads freeze solid through for like our bok choys, our lettuces and stuff. They'll wake back up. But I, that stress interest is very interesting to me right there. That's really nothing. We haven't dove into that. I mean, Paul and Sandy, they heat to 24 degrees because their whole thing is at 23 degrees, lettuce starts to really take a hit. I don't actually go for that, but this stress thing really now has me wanting to dive down that that, that rabbit hole. And now I want to buy two greenhouses and heat one to 34 and one to, you know, 24 and see what the growth rate is. Well, listen, I'll defer to Paul and Sandy every, and we're talking about Paul and Sandy. Yeah. 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 I'll I'll defer to Paul and Sandy every day of the week. They've, they've forgotten more about growing produce than I'll ever know about growing produce. So I'll I'll defer to them, but in our world, 34 for the little bit of a different additional cost made the most sense to us. Now, Interesting. when we got to the third week of February, the house went to 72 degrees. And, okay. and, that, was, and that was because we were planting tomatoes down the middle of all of the beds yes. for an early tomato crop. Yeah. And, and if we planted, if we planted tomatoes the right around the 20th of February, yes. we, would harvest, we would be harvesting our first batch of cherry tomatoes for the last winter market the last week of April. And yeah. And, and so while we might have only spent $1,000 from October to February, to the third week of February, from the third week of February until the middle of June, we would spend five. Yes. Even though the light was already coming back by then. Yeah, because we were just protecting the plants against the temperature. So first, yeah. week, first week, the plants were transplanted, we would maintain 72 degrees around the clock. Yeah. And, and then we would start dropping our nighttime temperatures down into the mid-60s. Uh, after the first week, but it sucked a, a huge amount yeah. of propane. It, yeah. You know, the, the, the thing that I, the thing that I see 
with a lot of folks that are starting out. And I certainly understand the financial, the financial aspects of being constrained in this way is that they try to skimp on infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And, and it usually ends up, it usually ends up costing them more in the long run because they're in a hurry to get to where they're trying to get to, mm-hmm. as opposed to spending the right type of money on the right type of equipment. And the one that comes to mind, it's the middle of winter, and we've all seen a bunch of houses that have collapsed this winter. Yes. And and there's very rarely that I see a house, pictures from a house that's collapsed where I go, well, geez, that's a surprise. That looks like that was well constructed by good materials. It's always an instance where somebody has, not always, but often an instance where someone has received an NRCS grant. Yep. They, they didn't upgrade the infrastructure they were buying with the grant. And with an NRCS grant, I, I'm sorry, you cannot buy a house that's properly constructed to deal with the types of loads it's going to no. in wind events, snow events. It's just, it's just yeah. the reality of the situation. Well, Likewise, I, I, it, I view those as a cost share. To me, it's a cost share to help me put in more covered space, not the complete. I mean, I've never like when all, every time we've done an RCS thing, it's always been like, Oh, great. It's going to help pay for the foundation or it's going to pay for, you know, a portion of it. Yeah. Um, Cause someone had a 40 by a hundred foot tunnel with no trusses. And um, again, this was an, a, a group and it got really heated because she got really defensive about, you know, how she grew it. And she's very upset about the whole thing. But I literally looked at that. I didn't even comment because it wasn't my place and it was, didn't need my commenting. But, um, and I was just like, if you built that with a 40 foot wide, no trusses and had a foot of wet snow coming, it was pure Again, yeah, I'll just let it go. But it was just ridiculous that 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 there was no re- there was there's no reason it would have survived. It couldn't survive. Yeah, and and so it it um, you know you you pay for what you get, and, yeah. and the cost to have have to rebuild just the the lost crop and the cost to rebuild all of those things. So by way of example, you know the risk for us when we were growing early tomatoes was we'd have a considerable amount of money invested in those tomatoes before we even started harvesting. Yeah. So I could never take the chance on having a flame out issue in one of my heaters. Yeah. So we have, we have multiple heaters in that heated greenhouse and, and they're on a control system so that if one fails, the other one picks up. Yep. And then behind that, the greenhouse is on a generator system that has an automatic transfer switch. That just automatically kicks right over. Yeah. Automatically kicks right over. I I don't want to have to worry about an alarm going off and it would, waking me up and running out at two o'clock in the morning. It's yeah. now yeah. when the power goes out, I would still go out and check to make sure that everything was operating the way that it was yes. supposed to. Right. Yeah. But, but again, you have to take, you have to build the infrastructure to take the strain off of the load. Right. Yeah. And one of the big mistakes that I see folks doing is that they're trying to just run too fast. And, and I remember the feeling and I know what it's like. And I, and this is one of those situations where it's do as I say, not as I do, because I still run down the hill too. Right. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes taking that extra time, even if it's an extra season to be able to raise the funds that you need to be able to do it the right way first in the long run, will get you much further ahead. Yeah. Because the only thing worse than paying to install infrastructure is having to tear that infrastructure out and rebuild it a second time. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And again, that's that, that additional year you can go intern for somebody. Cause again, again, and don't become a lifetime edu don't become just one that just goes from farm to farm to farm, but um, you know, for four years um, and never start your own farm, but do get around and visit at least a couple. I think you want to see at least six or eight farms overall before you really start to dive down your own farm journey. Um, there's always something I learn from a farm that I visit, even if it's something not to do. Yeah, and, and, and I think the other advantage now, and 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it was different, but now there's so much information available on the internet and, and, and through programs and, and training curriculums. And, I, and I'm not a big advocate of, of some of the training programs, but there's certainly enough content that's out there mm -hmm. that you can absorb information. And in many instances for free, and get a, get a long way to the other end of the conversation. And then it's also important to have mentors, regardless mm -hmm. of where you are in your journey, right? You're obviously a very experienced grower, but you still have mentors that you rely on to this day. Yeah. And even yeah. mentors I pay good money to. Yeah. yeah. As, you know, as, yeah. As, should, as should everyone. And so, um, and finding those mentors is often some of the most valuable experiences that you can have that will, that will yield the biggest return for you. Um, and, and you have to find the right people and you have to find those folks that are willing to be transparent and honest about the information that they're sharing. Yeah. And sometimes that can be challenging, but if you look hard enough, you'll find those folks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, talk to us a little bit about, you know, what do you see the next couple of years look like for you? Well, we're, we're hopeful to be able to finish the transition from Pennsylvania to Vermont. While we're farming in Vermont currently, um, we're, the family is still in Pennsylvania. So we spend um, the majority of the year up in Vermont, but we're back here in the winter. Um, we're putting our property for sale, putting our property up for sale here this mm -hmm. And we're hopeful it'll sell quickly and that we'll be able to finish the transition to Vermont this year. Uh, that's a significant undertaking, obviously. Um, but once we're situated there, our focus will be more towards value added product and then getting our production levels back up to 100,000 bulbs per year and then beyond that level. Mm -hmm. um, the, the pandemic has certainly thrown a lot of curveballs and trying to move. Uh, 500 miles away and transition a farm at the same time has, has been um, staggering. <laughs> yeah. Especially with the changes in the marketplace. So, so, you know, that's kind of the focus, the, the focus for the farm um, for us is really about continuing to develop uh, and enhance the quality of our overall crop while increasing the output and adding the supplemental product value add product lines into place. Um, we're, we're pretty keen on black garlic, but not black garlic in the sense of what's on the marketplace today. Some uh -huh. value added products with, with black garlic we think are, are interesting um, and, and kind of balances will help us balance out the workload and, and frankly yeah. give me something to entertain myself with in the winter. Um, as an individual, I'm personally looking forward to helping my daughters continue to grow uh, their on-farm businesses, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, and, and working with them as much as they'll let dad work with them. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, as, as 
the kids get older, I become increasingly dumber. Um, and at some point that'll reverse and I won't be as dumb as they think I am now. <laughs> yes. But, but certainly dealing with teenagers, um, dad is, that is not, uh, the sharpest knife in the drawer to say, to say the least. Yeah. Anymore. So, but, but looking forward to working with them and spending time with them and, and, um, we're working on some neat programs with bulbous and with clove to round projects and okay. utilize some of your, some of, of your garlic that otherwise may not be saleable due to size mm. um, to recover into a saleable crop. So a lot of work yet to do in that area, but it's really about continuing to enhance the processes. And, and for me at my age, I'm not getting any younger. So it's, it's really about how do we refine the processes so that I can continue to do this for as long as I possibly can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it can't stay the way that it is now because it won't be sustainable when I'm 75 or 80. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that it would be, have to be on the same scale, but at the moment, I can't think of anything else I would rather do than grow garlic. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so for me, a big goal is, is is being able to do that for as long as I can uh, in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite farming tool? I, I do actually. Um, my my favorite. Well, I, I probably have one for produce, and then I have one for garlic. Um, so my favorite farm tool when we were growing produce would have easily been the power harrow for the BCS. Mm-hmm. Power harrow was a game changer for us. Uh, especially in the greens game yep. uh, with, with preparing seedbed and, and carrots and, and those types of things. So that would have been my favorite growing produce. Um, growing garlic, my, my favorite tool is my solo battery-powered backpack sprayer. Okay, yep. Which uh, model do you have? I think it's a 429. Okay, yep. I think it's a 429. Um, and it's my favorite because it's battery powered. <laughs> yes. Yes. You plug that baby in and then just squeeze the trigger. Yeah. And, and so when we're doing foliar feedings in the garlic in early spring, uh, with fish and kelp, uh, not having to walk through the field pumping with my right arm and just being able to focus on spraying is, is, uh, is pretty nice. So that's my favorite garlic tool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Where can folks find out more about you? So you can find us on Facebook uh, and Instagram at Hardneck Garlic. And we also have a YouTube channel, uh, which is The Garlic Grower, which has some helpful tips on growing garlic and some videos of the farm in Vermont. Uh, And you can also reach us at our website, hardneckgarlic.com. All right. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dax. I know we've been trying to do this podcast for, you know, a couple of years now and uh, we just never quite made it work, but appreciate your expertise. I mean, we could have gone for another couple hours, I think on just the technical side of growing and curing garlic, um, but <laughs> we'll leave that for another winter day. So uh, again, appreciate your time today. Thanks, Michael. Hey, Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all 
all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.